I'd like to cover Hebrews chapter 3, the whole chapter today. We take forever to go through the book of Hebrews if we go verse by verse, but we do have to also honor scripture by really studying it well. And so um, the pace at which we move through this book will vary. Some days, some Sundays will we'll move faster through more verses other Sundays. So um, let's read it. I'm going to read from Hebrews 3 verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Heavenly Father, as we study this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would teach us what you want us to see in your word today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, the writer to the Hebrews has been explaining, and in the previous chapter he was looking at Jesus and in his humanity and describing Jesus as the one who came to identify with us, he was incarnated, and the writer said that Jesus' humanity was the qualifier for his saving work, and because Jesus suffered as a, as a man, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Though he was God, he became a man in order to lead many to God. And the writer emphasized Jesus' superiority to the angels. And those are the angels in a way that he was referring to who had appeared speaking for God and even mediated through the, the passing of the law to Moses when Moses met with God. And uh, we, we see this chapter begin. Therefore, holy... Brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. It's quite fascinating how chapter 2 starts with a, a charge to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And 
not neglect this great salvation. So at the beginning of chapter 2, there's an exhortation that says, you should heed, pay much closer attention to what you've heard and don't neglect this great salvation. So it's like, consider what Jesus has done for you. Consider salvation. And now chapter 3 begins with the charge to consider Jesus himself. And this word consider, just like at chapter 2 verse 1 where it says pay much closer attention, in chapter 3 verse 1 when it says consider Jesus, the word consider is not just look and then look away again. It's not just, oh Jesus did that, yeah he died on the cross and then you look away again and get on with your life. But actually there's a, a meaning behind this word which is the same word that Jesus himself used in Luke 12 verse 24 when Jesus said, consider the ravens. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. He was instructing people and he was saying, you need to think about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field because there's a lesson that you need to learn. You need to consider in such a way that you're looking and gaining some lesson from what you are studying. So this chapter 3 says, we should consider Jesus, we should look in such a way that we learn the lesson that we're supposed to learn from Him. And through this section of Scripture we're going to see that the writer has very specific lessons in mind that we're supposed to learn. So when he says consider Jesus, he's not just saying, yeah, there's Jesus. He's actually saying, put your attention on Jesus and work out why it's important that He's better than the angels, why it's important that He's better than Moses, what happened between Moses and Israel, what's going to happen between us and Christ and the future. So there's a lot the writer has in mind and we need to learn something. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 3 is broken up into two parts. I guess you could look at uh, chapter 3 verse 1 to 6 where you get a comparison between Jesus and Moses. But then from verse 7 to the end of the chapter, the writer continues to explain things that happened in Israel's history. He talks about the people in the desert. He talks about Moses a bit more, but also a lot about people's hardness of heart and unbelief. And so there's something that he wants us to get. And even before we dig into that, I want to also refer to in this kind of prologue to getting into the text. I want to mention this, this idea of learning something is related to Jesus being the, the, let me read it again just so I don't mess it up. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So this, consider Jesus in what context? As an apostle and a high priest of our confession. So the writer wants us to think about Jesus in relation to what we, what unites us. This word confession literally translates to same speak. So in the ways that you confess the same thing, you are united. And so consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession this thing that unites us, this thing that we have in common, our confession literally means same speak. And in order to emphasize the basis of our unity as a people or community, the writer frequently mentions things we share in. 
So we share in the flesh and blood that we were made flesh and blood. Jesus became flesh and blood. And so in Hebrews 2 verse 14, you get this verse, Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So there's this, we have this in common with Jesus. He became flesh and blood so he could make himself one with us so we could become one with him. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says, we share in a heavenly calling. In other words, God has sent Jesus as an apostle to earth and Jesus has come from earth to bring a message from heaven to call us to heaven. So there's this calling, sending and returning. Jesus has gone to heaven. We are going to go to heaven. We share in a heavenly calling. That's why we're looking at Jesus as this apostle and high priest of our confession. And in Hebrews 3 verse 14, in the passage we look at later, it says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's this idea that there's a sharing. You share with Jesus in flesh and blood. You share in a heavenly calling. You share in Christ himself. And this is... This is our confession. This is what we say as Christians. We, we declare it. And so we need to know what we believe. We need to stand firm in what we believe. In verse 14, the one I just read, it says something uses a word if, just like in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 14 says, We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end and in Hebrews 3 verse 6 it says Christ is faithful over God's house as the Son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope now that word if is not that you do these things in order to have that thing it's that so let me try and explain it a little bit. Let me use an explanation from a Bible commentator. Uh, Warren Wesby writes, The if clause needs to be understood in the light of the total context, which is Moses leading Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. The writer is not suggesting that we as Christians must keep ourselves saved. This would contradict the major theme of the book, which is that Christ has finished the work and he is a perfect heavenly he has a perfect heavenly ministry guaranteeing our eternal salvation rather the writers affirming that those who hold fast their confidence in other words they keep to this confession and they hold on to this hope proving that they're born again so it works like this in practical terms if you you have apples and oranges um, and a child that doesn't know the difference says um, which one's the apple, which ones are the orange. You ask your child, sort the apples and the oranges into separate piles. And now you say, the child says, but how do I know which ones go where? You say, if it's green, it's an apple. Okay. And, and so that's what the if means. It doesn't mean if you become green, you become an apple. So you could paint the orange green, it would still be an orange, it wouldn't be an apple. And so, in a sense, it's not that holding fast to our confession saves us. It's that if we're saved, we must hold fast to our confession and you will see at the end that you've prevailed. So, it's, it's, a, it's more of that. If it's green, it's an apple. If you hold fast to your confession. So the, the encouragement is that there is a, 
an opportunity to become a believer at any point in time. You may be part of the community of believers. You may be hearing the gospel Sunday to Sunday. But if you start to confess Christ, then prove it over time. Show yourself that you've now been a believer by just standing in that confession. And you'll see by the end of your life, did you or didn't you? It's more like, were you an apple or weren't you? So it's not putting the onus on us to save ourselves. That's the important distinction that we need to make. The reason I'm making this, taking the time to, to, to lay a foundation before I go through the rest of the chapter quickly, is that there's some fundamental ideas that we often get wrong when we read a book like Hebrews. We often conflate uh, the, the community and the individual as if they um, the same things, and then we personalize everything. Where actually in scripture, sometimes scripture is talking to an entire community and sometimes you can apply it to an individual, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes that scripture is just for the nation of Israel. So we have this tendency to come and look at scripture and say, hey, there's a prophecy for Israel. And then we personalize it when it was actually not for us, it was for Israel. And so we look at it as an individual thing. We often look at salvation only on the basis of it's heaven or hell, it's, it's me as an individual going to heaven or hell. And often scripture is speaking about God's salvific, his saving work with an entire nation or an entire generation of people. And so we have to then start to be very careful to understand what's the context that we're dealing with and what's really being spoken of. And so we tend to see things as it's either a question of this is about eternal salvation or eternal damnation, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's more going on in this passage than you realize. So now the writer shifts to a comparison with Moses. And you, you need to understand that he's not stepping backwards from comparing Jesus to angels now to, step, to, to compare Jesus with Moses. Actually, Moses in most of the Jewish mindsets of that time was higher than the angels. See, Moses was more hallowed or more more, let's say, revered by the people even than angels. Moses held a completely unique place to the Jewish people. The reason is because he saw God face to face. He met with God, he spoke with God. The literal translation of Moses speaking with God is he spoke mouth to mouth, meaning face to face. So God spoke, Moses spoke. They're talking facing each other, mouth to mouth, and he's facing each other. And he received the Ten Commandments from God to bring to Israel. Uh, the greatest thing all the, in all the world to the Jew was the law, and Moses was synonymous with the law. So in the New Testament, you often read Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, and he speaks to them about how they follow Moses, and he actually means you following the law. And so now the writer to the Hebrews is taking this comparison of Jesus and Moses. And he says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses, this is Hebrews 3 verse 2, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Wow, so there's a house, there's a builder, and God is the builder, but Jesus gets the glory of the builder, not the glory of the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Fascinating. So that's in there is a deity of Christ claim. Christ is the builder of the house. God is the builder of all things. Therefore, Christ is God. Jesus is God. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses, his generation only saw something that would be fulfilled in the future in Christ. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So the term house there is both the building but also the family. The Greek word that's used is, is, is oikos, it means community. So we're, we're the house. Moses was only part of God's universe, part of God's house. Jesus is the creator of the house. Moses did not create the law. He only passed it on to the people. Moses did not create the house. He only served in it. Moses was a servant. Jesus was the son. Moses knew a little about God. Jesus was God. So the writers now completely propping Christ up as in a completely different category. And should be, even when it comes to the law, which the Israeli, the Jewish people of the day, they held it dear. And it was good that they honored the law. And it's good for us to know God's word. It's good for us to look at the Old Testament and understand God's ways and honor them. But did they really? And that's the question now, because they were like putting Moses up on this pedestal. But Jesus is superior in every way. So we see what happened then. The writer goes on to explain what went wrong. And this is where we'll get into today's invitation in a sense. Hebrews 3 verse 7, I'm going to read onwards again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For you, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Uh, a lot of the time when you start reading Hebrews, especially from chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, people start debating whether you can lose your salvation or not, whether this is writing about you, it, it, these guys are, are an example that you can fall away from the faith and then never, never go to heaven. Let me just correct that right there. Canaan, crossing the Jordan, didn't take them into heaven. It didn't even take them into the final promises of God for His people. It took them into the land that God had given them. 
it took them into a place where God wanted to bless them. He wanted to prosper them. This land of milk and honey that He was giving to them, they were supposed to enjoy. They were supposed to conquer their foes. They would fight battles. They would defeat the enemies. They would flourish as a society. They would enjoy the blessings of God if they obeyed God, if they stuck with Him, if they trusted Him and followed Him. But Canaan wasn't the end goal, nor will even, a, 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 let's say, in this generation, in this age, there, there's not a goal to have like the geographical Israel as the promised land. Canaan was actually just like a prophetic picture given to Israel of what God wanted to do for the nations in Christ Jesus. What God wanted to do through Christ, but Christ himself ultimately <coughs> becomes the Sabbath rest. He becomes the end goal. He becomes your inheritance. And you know, the whole point the writer is making is, he shared with us in our flesh and blood, we share with him ultimately in glory. Uh, we, sh we share in this calling which is from heaven and to heaven. So there's this sharing, this uniting, and we share in Christ ultimately in Hebrews 3 verse 14. And so what we see happening actually is the writer wants you to think, consider Jesus and now look at Moses and Israel and what happened there. And Israel had sufficient reason for obedience, but they weren't confident. They didn't trust God. So what went wrong in the desert? See, I want to ask you a question. Did Moses go to hell? die and get condemned? No is the answer. Moses is one of the Old Testament saints, one of the greatest Old Testament saints. He's the one that appeared at the Transfiguration. Okay? So Moses appears at the Transfiguration with Elijah. He talks to Jesus. He's in glory. I don't know how the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah, but they must have been kind of shining brightly and looking kind of glorified a bit. They weren't in their bodies, their bodies are in the grave somewhere, dust to dust. But my point of asking that is quite simple, because what this writes to the Hebrews is pointing out is that Moses didn't enter the Promised Land. He didn't go into Canaan, he didn't cross the Jordan, and this means that he didn't get the full inheritance God wanted for his generation. But it didn't mean, it isn't a parallel to not getting saved. You see, the salvation part of the story was secured way earlier. The salvation part of the story took place before the Exodus happened at the Passover. There was the judgment of God against the, the firstborn that would have killed all the Israelite firstborn too. It was, it, it was, it was the symbol of the judgment God will bring on sin at the final day. It's, it's across all of humanity. But those who were under the blood of the Lamb, those who sacrificed the Passover Lamb, painted their doorposts and the lintel, they did not suffer death. They were passed over, hence the term Passover. And so what we see there is the, the, the demonstration of the salvation and the deliverance of God's people who are under the blood. So we get saved and delivered from our sins by Jesus when we are under His blood. When we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior, and I believe that your blood has paid the price for my sin. So when Israel was set free from Egypt, 
that's actually this symbolic idea of being saved. Saved, rescued, delivered, set free. And taken into a wilderness journey where they were tested, but actually they were ultimately the ones who tested God. They tried His patience for 40 years, and in the end, do you know what happened to them? They died without entering into Canaan. Now God had promised a whole lot of blessings that they could have in the promised land, and it reached that point where a couple of critical things took place. Um, the one is, God had initially said to the people when they were grumbling, when they wanted water, God said to Moses, strike the rock, and he struck the rock and they got water from the rock, and the imagery was again of Christ being the water of life, but he would be struck so that we would live, and so there's this nice imagery there, but behind it also there's a question of obedience, and there's a question of trust, there's a question of faith. Moses did something because he listened to God and obeyed Him, and he did so by faith, and water came forth from the rock. That should have, it says in the text we just read, God did miracles for 40 years. He kept on proving Himself to Israel. He kept on capitulating to their pleas, and they kept on turning away from Him and grumbling. He sent manna from heaven. Then He sent uh, serpents... Uh, that were making them, stay, you know, they, 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 they got sick, there were plagues, there was all kinds of discipline from God. But God wasn't trying to destroy them. When they died in the wilderness, they died outside of the full inheritance, but they did have something, they had freedom. They, when, when, when they were going to be wiped out because of God's real like anger. He said, I'm just going to destroy all my people. Moses said, what will, what will the other nations say if your people, if you kill them in the desert, that you took them out of Egypt only to kill them? What will people think of? What kind of a God are you if you do that? Moses reasoned with God and God again relented, capitulated to Moses and said, okay, I won't destroy them. So God wasn't destroying Israel in the, in the desert. He was trying to direct them, discipline them, and deliver them into the promised land. What they kept doing was wanting to go back to Egypt, grumbling that things were better when they were in Egypt. And then they finally, the, the other thing that happened then on the same issue was when they needed water another time, and God said something different to Moses, He said, speak to the rock. And Moses got all together um, worked up in front of the people. Perhaps he was feeling annoyed with the people himself, or perhaps he wanted to show off that he could do this. And he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. So he didn't follow God accurately. And then God said, ah, you, even you are not listening and obeying, and I'm not going to allow any of you guys to go into the promised land. The other thing that contributed to the same decision was the spying out of the land. You remember the story of Joshua, Caleb and the other ten spies? The twelve spies from Israel went into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan, they sneaked along like looking, looking what's in this land and they saw beautiful inheritance and opportunity but then they saw opposition in the form of all those Canaanites, Amalekites, you know, any kind of act that's like big. They were like giants. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes. 
they would just destroy us, said the ten spies. They came out of that mission, having done their reconnaissance, and they brought a faithless report. They brought no faith to the table. The ten spies said, we can't do it. Even though God said, I'm giving you this land. So they rejected the promise of God. They didn't believe or trust God, except Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb said, we can surely take the land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And yes, there are giants. There are enemies there. But surely we can have this land. Two different perspectives on this inheritance opportunity. God wanted to give them blessings in this covenant that they had already. He said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. So he delivered them from Egypt into a journey with him where they were heading towards a destiny God had for them, an inheritance of this beautiful land, physical prosperity, physical blessing, stuff that's really wonderful to enjoy, a good life at a cost where you would face giants and you would have to fight God's fights. And when they finally did go in, what happened? Joshua led them in. They fought at Jericho and God was with them and gave them massive victory. There were the, the this, this mighty wall of the strong city fell supernaturally, miraculously after they marched around it all these times. So God wanted that for Israel. Israel didn't trust or believe in God and God said, including Moses, this entire generation just doesn't want to trust me so they can't enter into the promised land. They will die in the desert. He doesn't kill them. They just get old and die having not obtained the full inheritance that God had for them. They died free. And they went to heaven, some of them, like Moses. I mean, I say heaven, but I mean he's, he's waiting for Jesus to return in the resurrection of the dead. So he's in paradise now, I guess. Uh, the, the picture is little bit complicated for me to understand. You know, the martyrs that died in Revelation, there's a picture of them beneath the throne of God and they're saying, how long, O Lord, before justice is served? And so then these ideas that you go in spirit, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So wherever the Lord is, that's where Moses was. And then he met with Jesus and he was in a kind of a shiny state, glory, glorious state, but not in a physical body. We're still waiting for the resurrection of his body when Jesus returns. But we have no doubt about Moses' final destiny being with God in glory. So again, I'm emphasizing that dying in the desert didn't mean that you lost your salvation. Moses died in the desert, but what did he lose? He lost an incredible amount of blessing. He lost this wonderful opportunity that Joshua and Caleb and all the ones under 20 years old that were allowed to cross the Jordan, they went in to possess the land. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us is that actually, as Christians, you're in a covenant with a God who wants to bring you into an inheritance that is good. God has plans and provisions to give you awesome stuff in this life for whether you're now in the place of in your mind a desert experience or whether you've crossed the Jordan and you're in the Canaan land and you're fighting the giants 
all of this is still before Jesus comes back. All of this is still not the final rest that you'll find in Christ. But there's, there's stuff to be obtained and it's only obtained by faith. And so God was angry at Israel because of their unbelieving hearts. And even a Christian can shrink back into fear. And even a Christian can have an unbelieving heart. And it's wicked when you don't trust God. You know what happened the one day? I was driving my mom's car. She's a little bit of, she's a normal South African, so they love their cars. And, and they, I, 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 I want her to relax and trust me that I can drive. I'm not a kid anymore. I mean, I'm her kid, but I'm not a kid. And I'm driving, this is not long ago, so it's still tender wound. And I, the place where she lives, they've got tar roads but with some real bumps. And I hit a pothole and she screamed. Ah! And this anger rose up inside of me and I rebuked her for like losing her cool. I said, the car's going to be fine, we're going to be fine, why are you screaming? And she's like, well, I don't know, it was, you know, I just get a shock or whatever. I'm like, no, relax, you can trust me. Why was I so offended by that response? Because I interpreted it as a kind of a rejection of my skill and my capability to get the car and her and me safely to the destination. Now that's what we do to God as Christians. We, 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 we go in somewhere and then we see something and we're like, oh no, I can't face that. I can't, God won't get me through this. I can't trust Him for what He's calling me to do. And God's like, you can trust me. The only way you get any inheritance is God, in God is by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everything that you do in terms of this heavenward calling should be a faith response like Joshua and Caleb, and not just a surveying of the facts like the ten spies. Not just saying there are giants and we can't do this, but actually saying God has got something for me to obtain in this life, and I will go and fight the giants, and He will give me victory, and I will obtain this inheritance. And so in this sense, I believe that even the idea of not shrinking back and not falling from grace, not leaving your confession and your hope, not losing your confidence, is the whole point that the writer to the Hebrews is making to believers. He's saying you shouldn't cast aside your confidence, you shouldn't give up your confession, you shouldn't shrink back from the hope that you have in Christ because God is faithful. Moses was faithful over what God asked him to do, but in general the people were unbelieving and so they didn't enter in. We should be believing, we should be people of faith, because we've got even more reason. We have Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who has gone before us, has conquered death, is seated in glory, and we will one day enter into that fullness. And so why now in the battles of this life, or in the decisions we make in this life, should we live in an unbelieving, untrusting state? If so, we're behaving like Israel behaved towards God. That's what the writer is trying to say. He's not telling you you're going to lose your salvation or keep it in your own strength. He's saying there's an inheritance for you to obtain, and it's only obtained by faith. And so there are, there's this, there are these promises of God you get as a believer, and you have to take a hold of them by faith. You have to live your life by faith. That for me is a, is a grand theme of the book of Hebrews. It says that no part of your Christian walk should be devoid of faith. Believing in and hoping in and trusting in God. 
who is through Christ able to give you all these things. It's a beautiful picture for me when I look at Hebrews and I see how Jesus is the forerunner and the pioneer and the author. He's the guy that's done everything for us. It's, it's magnificent. But for me then to think it's actually disobedience for me to shrink back from the things that God calls me to. It doesn't mean I'll lose my salvation. It just means I'll lose something of the reward of having co-labored with Christ. This is scriptural. If you read 1 Corinthians 3, it speaks about our works being wood, hay and stubble, if, they, if they're just our own works. Or we could build with gold, silver and precious stones. And on that day our works will be tested and some will arrive in heaven, in glory. They will pass the test with no rewards, no fruit, no inheritance besides eternity. Well, that's wonderful. It means that you can be the laziest, most rubbish Christian on earth and still go to heaven. You, you could be the worst of the losers of Christianity and still go to heaven. You could be the scum guy who's too lazy to put a chair straight on a Sunday. He said, I will never lift a finger to help the church. I don't trust those guys. You could look at God's people with suspicion your whole life and still be in heaven with the rest of us if you believe in Jesus. See, it's, you, you can build your life without faith. You can build it in comfort. You could say, I just want to live for myself. I know where I'm going. Jesus paid for my sins, but I, that, beyond that, I'm, I'm cool with just watching Netflix. It's all I want to do. Just leave me alone. You still go to heaven, but you'll be the guy that smells like smoke. You'll be the guy with no rewards, no crown to lay his feet. No, you just get there because that's how good Jesus is. That's how complete his salvation is. And through the rest of Hebrews, we're going to see that. We're going to see that Jesus' salvation is complete in him. But the writer is saying there's far more to your life that should be obtained. There was far more for Moses. Was Moses supposed to die in the desert? Was that generation of Israel supposed to not enter the promised land? They were supposed to go in, but why didn't they? Because of unbelief. Because they didn't trust in God. And so this idea that your faith is the, 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 the key, the, the unlocker to the opportunities God brings to your life is important for us as believers. We said, the life I live, I live by faith. Yeah. I go to Madagascar by faith. I leave South Africa because I believe God has an inheritance for me in Madagascar. Why would you leave Switzerland and come to Madagascar? You have to have some faith to do that. You have to say, I see an opportunity for the kingdom of God and I take a hold of it by faith. That's how we're supposed to live as believers. Why would you persevere in business when your business is struggling and God's spoken to you and said, I want you to do business for my glory. And you say, well, I'm still not going to pay bribes. I'm still not going to give in and sin. I'm going to stand and I'm going to see the deliverance of my God. You must live by faith. That way you possess your inheritance. You want a husband or a wife? It may be a long test of faith. You may also have to take actions. James says faith is not just an ethereal concept. Faith is proved by your actions. But if you don't trust God, 
if you don't apply faith as a human being, as a believer, you'll be kept out of your inheritance. That's really, I think, the ideas I wanted for you to hear this morning. That as you look at Jesus, realize that he's far better than Moses. Moses was faithful as a, as a part of God's household. He got the people to the promised land, but they couldn't even go in because of unbelief which led to disobedience. But we, with Christ, we can follow all the way to the end. All the way to the end. The, the journey involves a covenant where even now in this life, God wants to do us good. We have battles to fight, we have giants to slay, but there's milk and honey. Those are earthly things for Israel to enjoy. They didn't because of their stubbornness not to trust God. What do you trust God for in your life? What is it that you believe that God has spoken to you? When you distrust God and you turn away from Him and you develop an unbelieving, distrustful heart, you stop listening to Him anyway. So you don't hear future promises. You don't hear God say, I've got this ahead for you. I've got this blessing ahead for you. I've got this blessing ahead for you. Instead, you're like, I just, I just want to get back into the worldly stuff. You won't even hear the things, the good things God's promising for you. But when you walk with God, when you obey Him, then He starts to say, and I'd like you to do this, and I want you to have that, and I want you to build this thing, all for His glory, and it's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. That's what Israel encountered when they went into the promised land. Conflict, crisis, but through obedience, through faith, and patience, they inherited what God had promised.